As the COVID-19 pandemic spreads across the globe and communities seek to protect themselves however they can, governments are being challenged to respond. While the vast array of governments have not done well in initial responses, some have been transparent, direct, and engaged with their citizens and the global community. Others, particularly those with authoritarian features or tendencies, are engaged in responding to the crisis that puts political and economic interests out front, crafting policy and decree accordingly. The declaration of emergency rule in too many countries only solidifies what was already there in practice and leaves many people scared, not only of the virus itself, but what may come next when life returns to what we now call normal. Human rights defenders are responding to these challenges, as they always do, by working hard, reaching out to their communities, identifying those who are struggling or are in need or have been left out, and trying to help. They are calling out government abuse and excess and finding new ways to communicate with each other and the outside world to challenge power. Frontline Defenders started receiving reports of HRDs being targeted in various ways in the early weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. As the virus has spread, so too, seemingly, have attacks against HRDs, either via smearing and defamation online or in various ways, including physical attacks and criminalization. Imprisoned HRDs, often held in deplorable conditions, are also at great risk of exposure and other health complications as cramped facilities with poor sanitation are potential contagion zones. Today, Frontline Defenders relaunches its Rights on the Line podcast to offer another platform for the voices, perspectives, and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and leading struggles for the health, well-being, and rights of their communities. In this episode, Frontline Defenders speaks to feminist activist Yara Hawari from Palestine about the consequences of the pandemic for a population under military occupation. Then we discuss government response in the context of the environment in Uganda with the founder of Friends of Zoka, William Amenzuru. Finally, we hear from Sarah Garcia-Gross from El Salvador, a leading women's rights defender, about the government's response in the context of its dark past, the rampant violence against women in the country, and the current dispute between the president and the opposition. On the Frontline Defenders website, www.frontlinedefenders.org podcast, you will find more information, videos, and links about these defenders, their work, and how you can help. More episodes assessing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will be released in the coming days and weeks as we offer this podcast as solidarity to human rights defenders and their struggles for justice. The first reported cases of COVID-19 in Palestine were of foreign tourists visiting Bethlehem. Palestinian officials took immediate measures to shut down the city and to quarantine foreigners visiting the Holy Land. Yet the virus has spread in both Israel and Palestine, putting the Palestinian population at grave risk as it remains under military occupation and control. A United Nations report has found that settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank has spiked by 78% during the last two weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. Media outlets report and video shows Israeli soldiers spitting at Palestinians during raids in the West Bank. Gaza, still under a blockade by Israel that international law experts have determined to be illegal and which endures severe health crises on the best of days, is struggling to deal with the first reported cases of the virus. Frontline defenders spoke with Yara Hawari in Palestine about the situation and what might yet be in store for Palestinians under occupation. Thank you, Yara, for joining us. 
Despite COVID-19 restrictions all over the globe, in Palestine, it seems, the Israeli occupation continues business as usual. Raids on Palestinian villages, home demolitions, continuing imprisonment, and targeting of Palestinian civilians. Can you tell us what you are seeing and what Palestinians are experiencing? Palestinians are experiencing COVID-19 um, in, within a reality of Israeli military occupation. And of course, this has various different manifestations, which weakens not only the Palestinian authorities, um, but also the Palestinian people um, in the face of this deadly virus. So we know that many healthcare systems around the world are really struggling to deal with the pandemic. But in, in both the West Bank and Gaza, the medical capabilities of these donor-dependent healthcare systems have been seriously depleted by 53 years of Israeli occupation. There are shortages in equipment, in medication, with staff, um, and this is directly as a result of restrictions on imports, military raids, etc. by the Israeli regime. In Gaza in particular, it's, um, it's certainly a worry because Gaza has faced over 14 years of blockade. Actually, the UN uh, deemed it to be unlivable by 2020. Now, as a result of the, the, the blockade and multiple wars that it has seen, the healthcare system has been totally devastated um, and already struggles to deal with the medical cases that were brought to them before the pandemic. And all of this continues. Um, the Israeli occupation hasn't ceased, it hasn't been lifted, it, it hasn't halted in its violations. And there are many other daily manifestations of occupation that have continued, such as the demolition of Palestinian homes. The Israeli authorities often demolish Palestinian homes either as a form of collective punishment uh, for the families of political prisoners or because they argue that they were built without permits. Now, the Israeli regime never um, or hardly ever dishes out permits to Palestinians and therefore they have to more often than not build illegally. Now, the cruel irony of demolish demolishing Palestinian homes is that the motto of this pandemic is stay at home. And yet you have uh, hundreds of people being displaced because the Israeli authorities are taking that away from them. Military raids are also continuing on Palestinian villages and towns. And uh, only a few days ago, we saw Ramallah being raided by the Israeli army. And this is of course done through the security coordination with the Palestinian Authority. But there have also been direct attacks on Palestinian attempts to confront the virus. And we saw this with the demolition of a COVID-19 clinic in the Jordan Valley. We also saw this with the arrest of Palestinian volunteers attempting to distribute supplies to impoverished communities in East Jerusalem. The Israeli occupation authorities have also been failing to take preventative measures to protect Palestinian political prisoners who are being illegally incarcerated within the military prison system. So all these things are, are really part of part and parcel of the, the occupation passage and um, package, um, and it makes it that much more difficult for Palestinians to confront uh, the COVID-19 pandemic.
In previous times of crisis, such as the wars on Gaza, we have seen settlers and occupation forces deployed in the West Bank or in Jerusalem escalate their activities, basically the Israeli government using the crisis to focus attention in one place while continuing and advancing land-grabbing, demolitions of homes, etc. in other places. Do you think the Israeli government is ready to exploit this crisis to further its aims vis-à-vis the occupied territories and create more so-called facts on the ground? I think it's certainly the case that the Israeli government is using this situation of lockdown and curfew to their advantage. The fact that many Palestinians are having to stay home out of fear that um, they might contract the virus or that they might spread it, and particularly within the context of a really depleted healthcare system, many Palestinians are are, are adhering to this. But it makes their um, capability of resisting uh, the occupation that much harder if they're not there to protect their land, um, their land could be vulnerable to settler takeover. And we saw this a few weeks ago in a couple of villages and areas around Nablus where Palestinians did have a sit-in, and this was before the the full-on lockdown. And um, they had a sit-in to try and prevent Israeli settlers from um, taking land and setting up an outpost. And the Israeli settlers were, as usual, protected by the Israeli army. The Israeli army um, confronted the Palestinian demonstrators and in the process they shot and killed a 15-year-old boy. And this is, of course, not something new, it's continuing. But I think we have to be ready to expect much more exploitation um, of the situation from, from the Israeli regime. I think the exploitation will also be seen in the diplomatic arena. We've already seen that Various uh, international figures have praised Israel for their coordination with the Palestinian Authority. Now, this really isn't coordination. What they've done is they've allowed uh, for some internationally donated medical supplies into the West Bank. As of yet, they have uh, they have not been allowing enough supplies um, into the West Bank or into Gaza, but they've been um, commended um, for facilitating this. What they really should be doing, the international actors, is condemning Israel for not taking its responsibility up as an occupying force to make sure that the occupied population has sufficient medical supplies. On social as well as mainstream media, there are stories reporting on the ingenuity of Palestinians making masks or in Gaza someone engineering a homemade ventilator. These are stories of great resilience, but it also points to the failures of the occupation authorities to fulfill its responsibilities to the population it controls. Yet... The media coverage does not seem to report this. What is the responsibility of the media in terms of reporting the COVID-19 crisis as it impacts Palestine and Palestinians? I think all populations of people who are vulnerable, who are occupied, colonized, depressed, I think these these conditions always allow for, for really remarkable stories of uh, steadfastness, of resistance and ingenuity. And it's certainly the case in in Palestine where people have really had to come up with very creative ways in in order to survive. And we often see these stories coming out of Gaza. Gaza has been under blockade for over 13 years. It's been um, destroyed and depleted many times by the, the Israeli army, and yet the people continue to live and they continue to survive. And we are hearing stories of Gazans making masks and ventilators. Um, and, and I think it really is incredible that they have the motivation and that they have the, the, the creativity to do so. But I think it's also important to remember 
These are feel-good stories. And whilst it's important to have feel-good stories, it's important to focus as well on the macro structural issue. These people are having to come up with these creative solutions to try and save lives because they are under a deadly blockade. And whilst there are Palestinians in Gaza making ventilators, these ventilators will only be temporary and they will certainly not be enough to cater for the two million uh, population that exists. So I think it's important for the media when they do cover these stories, um, they do highlight Palestinian ingenuity, that they don't forget the overall structure of uh, oppression, which is, uh, which is a serious Israeli blockade, which has devastated the, the Gazan healthcare system and infrastructure, um, and which means that it's very unlikely uh, that Gaza will be able to withstand an outbreak of COVID-19. Again, thank you, Yara, for giving us a view of what is happening in Palestine during this pandemic. During the last week of March, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni introduced a series of increasingly restrictive measures in response to the COVID-19 crisis. On March 31st, the Ugandan army spokesperson announced that the police, army, and an armed community policing paramilitary group called the Local Defense Unit, LDU, coordinated by the Ugandan army, would conduct patrols to help enforce the directive. However, since the first measures were announced, military and LDU personnel have used force in upholding the policies, including a number of shootings and physical assaults on civilians. Other reports of land grabbing and the use of force to remove residents by multinational companies are starting to emerge. Frontline Defender spoke with William Amanzuru, who is the founder of Friends of Zoka, an organization aimed at stopping illegal logging in Zoka Forest. Last year, he was recognized as the 2019 winner of the EU Human Rights Defender Award in Uganda. Thank you, William, for joining us. We have seen that the government in Uganda has announced a two-week period of closure and a curfew. Can you tell us how you are experiencing that so far? Indeed, it's true. The government of the Republic of Uganda announced uh, a two-week period of closure and a curfew. But uh, within this two-week period, we have now passed like around five to six days of the two weeks. It has never been easy for a person like me who has given face to do many of these things because my face had been recognized at the national level and also I think uh, partially at international level. So in this period of the curfew, there is a lot of surveillance put around people like me I get military personnel who come around my home, they pass around as if they are doing their own things, but then I'm a bit skeptical that these are all ways of to monitor what am I doing exactly, where am I exactly, the people I interact with, who is paying visit to my home, maybe who do I talk to in the community, all that. So. It's not a simple time for me, but uh, I take a lot of precaution because at the end of it, what I know is the life in me must be protected much as I speak on behalf of many of my population members and many of my citizens. Uh, I have also noticed something weird that happens is uh, each time I make phone calls, you see, you, you hear an echo 
and from expert point of view the friends have consulted it seems someone somewhere is doing a track of what i communicate so at times i find it hard to 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 have an open communication even with my friends within here on phones and on other you know <clears throat> especially making telephone conversations with them and also i feel maybe there could be some infiltration of trying to hack into my emails and all that but uh, i am yet to find that out otherwise the curfew experience is not a good experience because it is seen the military personnel have marked where we are they are doing secret monitoring of what exactly we do there are reports that the military and other security agencies have committed abuses including firing their weapons at civilians for riding on a motorcycle and raiding an lgbt shelter your work is known for protecting the environment and the land we know that in Uganda there is the problem of land grabbing, logging and other illegal activities. Are you worried about and have you heard reports of this kind of activity during the crisis? It's true we have a bad record of land grabbing, bad record of environmental abuse in my country. What worries me a lot is that uh, this lockdown has given a lot of privileges for the many companies that do this businesses illegally to continue doing their business i can give an example of what happened like uh, on the 3rd of april i was called by one of my informers that uh, they are hearing machines you know these, these are power saw machines used for cutting down trees machines were being heard inside zoka central forest reserve and this is a forest reserve that i really gave a lot of time and my life to protect it i have done what i felt was a bit necessary to tell people the importance of having a beautiful environment the importance of living in harmony with the nature in harmony with the trees and all this but then you really can't believe that because next to the entrance inside the forest there is a military detach now by the fact that you hear machine inside this forest reserve confirms that this curfew this lockdown is beyond a response to covid-19 you know it's it's being done also in the interest you know of, of of massively abusing our natural resources especially forest products my worry is that now logs are being you know collected uh, charcoal is being burned massively and all these things are loaded on trucks and they head to Kampala. Nobody is along the way to see these things. Nobody is allowed to come out and, 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 and really have a documentation of all this. But I am happy. I keep getting phone calls. So by the fact that I get phone calls that inside Zoka Central Forest Reserve, which, by the way, squarely lies under government mandate in terms of its protection under the mandate of National Forest Authority, and if machines are there up to now, then the lockdown is in a second interest of abusing our environment. Also, interestingly, on the 4th of April, an accident happened between the border of Koboko and Maracha, where a trailer loaded with the logs got an accident. And in a sad way, the driver lost his life. You know, this happened on the 4th of April. They claim the logs are coming from South Sudan, but I know the quality of logs that come from South Sudan. I dispute that when you see the logs, those logs don't come from South Sudan. Those are logs that have been, you know, locally harvested here in illegal means. And my suspicion is those logs could have been from Ajumani or Moyo, 
where we take precedence in terms of you know talking about environmental abuse so to me the lockdown in an, in 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 many ways that we cannot deny is giving leeway okay for these companies to, to to really do a lot of distractions here are you seeing the deployment of the military and security forces in your district in such a way that would enable these companies to carry out these activities during this time i get phone calls of trailers living with bags of charcoal fully loaded and the military men are patrolling these roads of ours every day they on the many roads they on these local roads that connects to our villages they on the roads that connects within our districts they also on the roads that connects to our regions but they cannot stop this now that tells you exactly what these guys are doing as far as environmental abuse is concerned and for me it really worries me a lot on issues of protecting these companies i think the government protects these companies massively we have followed the companies that do this illegal business in logs and in charcoal but interestingly our registration board in this country does not have any documents of the realities of these companies meaning companies are formed to perform specific duties you can't even know who are the owners of these companies if 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 this is how things are done then you can clearly understand what it means for the military men you know they are here to protect the company they are here to make sure that log business is going on they are here to make sure that you know charcoal business is going on and these are the two detrimental businesses that massively abuse our environment you mentioned you are being monitored given that hrds are limited in their ability to go out to observe witness and document abuses and are reliant on social media more than ever do you think it is going to be a more dangerous time in terms of smearing and defamation and surveillance during the crisis it is true we 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 get some of this you know informations through social media and other kind of also um, um, setups that we have within our areas of operation but then i am also aware that not all information on social media give us facts but somehow somewhere where i am in my own setting here my colleagues with whom i deal the informers with whom i deal i think they have a principle of 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 facts principle of truth because they send me pictures like i have pictures of the accident that took place before our local news here ran it i had to call a journalist and tell the journalist please can you interest yourself because there is an accident along the main road you know and when the journalist called the military personnel decided to say no you can't walk you can't move there until we confirm so so, so you see this tells you exactly the, how the cartel is operating uh we have witnessed a lot of abuses in my district where i am a man has been clobbered and uh, he broke his hand we have incidences of somebody who was you know harassed from a from a truck he felt and died we have incidences of people being beaten every evening of the curfew we also have reports that if these guys need you they even get up to your home and enter inside your house and you know club you for me now what i do best is uh, they even don't know where i sleep they know much as they know my home i make sure i stay out but then uh, 
late getting late in the night i try to find out which room to sleep in or where to to, to really find myself in and and all that because i'm doing all this you know to, to to make sure that i protect myself in this curfew because if if you know curfew it's more or less like a state of lawlessness you know the military takes the precedent on many things they define in their interest so 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 i i avoid such kind of definition that can easily lead to dens on me because we have poor response mechanism even in terms of protecting us as HRDs. So at the end of the day, it's how you really stand up and how you best use some of these opportunities to make sure that you create a platform where you relevantly still deliver messages, you relevantly still report, and you relevantly still document. I also think uh, this is going to be a bit uh, a tricky moment for us in terms of smearing and defamation and also surveillance on the work we do. The issue of defamation, the issue of smear campaign, yes, it will continue. Like now me, you know, a lot has been said about me. I am just a stranded person. I, I, I don't have any definition in life. You know, I seem to be lost and all that. That's why I'm doing this. You see, they have gone to a level of attacking my wife. She's a prostitute. She, she sells herself where she is, you know, because they have failed to track down where my family is. So all this gives them, you know, an opportunity to keep abusing you, to keep, you know, smearing you and all that. You see, the local leadership here, they get to the radio station and when they talk about environmental issues, they even announce that, no, the guys who talk about environment are stranded members of our society. It's just because they are not employed, they are jobless, that's why they speak about some of these things. So to me, that aspect of defamation, that aspect of, you know, smear campaigns and the rest of it, I have gone through it, I am going through it. So the only thing that matters is I tell the people, please, let's give it time. Once I'm called whatever name it is, I say, I, I have nothing to dispute about those names. The only thing is let's give ourselves time to see whether the names will come to reality. And if they come to reality, we confirm. If they don't come to reality, then you have a second opinion to think about the person who called me the names they thought I deserved the best. So, me, that's how I respond to it. I don't go to it in terms of, you know, having it openly denied, openly accepted. No, I take record of it. At times I write it down. At times I go to the community. I get a manila paper, put there, then you write there, he's a thief, he's this, the wife is a prostitute and all this. Then I tell community, this is how we are being identified for speaking the truth. Thank you, William, for joining us. For more information on Friends of Zoka and the work William and the other volunteers in his organization are doing to protect the land and environment in Uganda, please visit the website for this podcast. El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, came to power as a champion to fight corruption. Yet since he has come to power, he has sown mistrust among the population. This was highlighted by a February showdown with opposition lawmakers over an international loan, 
when he brought the armed forces into the Legislative Assembly, invoking fears of the country's dark, not-so-long-ago past. When the COVID-19 crisis started expanding beyond China and Asia, and the president took the strictest measures in the Western Hemisphere before any other country, and using the military to enforce compliance. Frontline Defenders talks with Sarah Garcia Gross, a Salvadoran feminist and human rights defender and a member of the Salvadoran Network of Women Human Rights Defenders. She is also the advocacy coordinator for the NGO Agrupación Ciudadana por la Despenalización del Aborto Terapéutico Ético y Eugenésico. Sarah, El Salvador acted very quickly to the COVID-19 crisis, shutting down the country with rigid measures before the first cases were reported. However, some have seen this move by the government, coming so soon after the challenge to the lawmakers, as politically motivated. What is the perspective of human rights defenders? In principle, there is no connection between the two events, but it is necessary to visualize that the measures that are being implemented in the context of COVID-19 are based on an authoritarian and militaristic logic and are a part of the strategies pushed by a president who has committed political aberrations such as the February 9, an event that as a human rights defenders we considered to be an armed treat to the incipient democracy system of El Salvador. It was an attack on the memory of the great majority who lived the armed conflict and who continued without yet having obtained justice. Yes, some of the measures implemented by the government are opportunistic and they are having severe problems. Um, the problems are they are applied and the opposition continues being critical in this contest. How have the measures taken impacted the work you do as a human rights defender? The impact on the work of human rights defender in a context which limits mobility has been complicated. The militaristic logic and hate speech are impacting our work. The repression also is in the virtual space in the internet. The repressive logic of the president implies an intolerance of critical dissents. Then, when there are charges against the action of the executive, this unleashes a series of attacks, misogynist in many cases, that attack the freedom of expression and generate symbolic violence against women human rights defenders and journalists. In addition, the president has generated a campaign to stigmatize human rights defenders for being critics, including suggesting that we are in favor of the virus. What impact, particularly for Salvadoran women, has this had? Stay at home implies having a privileged situation. It is a fact that the COVID-19 emergency is impacting the daily lives of Salvadorian women. The confinement and mandatory home quarantine measures have placed women in a situation of risk as they face violence, deepening the precariousness of many women's lives and the feminization of poverty.
the mandatory quarantine implies staying at home with the aggressor, a condition that is even more aggravated in a country with patriarchal justice and constant impunity. How many girls will confront sexual violence and have no access to justice? How many imposed pregnancies will occur during this time? In addition, staying at home is not an option for those who work in the informal sector, which is the majority of women. What are your concerns about how the government is enforcing these measures, not just now, but looking forward? We have concerns about freedom of expression, the right to defend rights, the ambiguous information, the way the president communicates, where he abused his power using military narratives and violating the concept of a secular state. He used messages from God to justify negligence. We are concerned that the human rights agenda, the agenda of sexual and reproductive rights, will become the lowest priority and that impunity and violence will increase. We are concerned about the greater labor and economic instability that we will face. I think it is the moment for us as an organization, as a social organization, to question even more strongly this capitalism system, that we look for ways to transform it, and that we generate alternatives from a perspective of an economy of feminist solidarity. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. For more information on Sarah's work to protect sexual and reproductive rights of Salvadoran women in El Salvador, please check out the webpage for this podcast.